This is Salmon Folk Radio. Episode 3. It's day one, July 31st, 2018. It's 5.30 a.m. in Carborough, North Carolina, and as I wake up and run through my gear list one last time before leaving for the airport, my filmmaking journey to Vancouver Island is just beginning. What I didn't know is that at that exact moment, the dark waters of the Salish Sea were parting for a mother's vigil. In the place I was about to fly towards, a matriarch named Telequa was using her body to keep her deceased child afloat. Her extended family swam next to her, sometimes helping her with the task at hand. Telequa was over 18 feet long, and her black and white form weighed about 4,500 pounds. By this time, her and her surrounding pod had been swimming like this, carrying her dead child for six days. I've been working on this episode nearly three years to the day that this was all happening, in July of 2021, and Barry Swanson, a resident of the Salish Sea, agreed to speak with me last week in order to provide context for what was happening back in 2018. Our interview took place via Zoom. Listen in. So, first of all, I'd like to say that I am not a scientist. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I'm, uh, I'm an interested party. I have a strong passion. I'm fortunate that I have the time to be able to spend with these orcas, but also with a lot of other creatures, and that's really my passion in life. So having said that, let me backtrack then to uh, where we are in the Pacific Northwest. So if you think about the Pacific Ocean, which is off the coast of San Francisco and Los Angeles and Hawaii happens to be in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come up the coast of California and Oregon and Washington, when you get to um, basically the apex or the top of uh, Washington State, uh, you come to a place uh, which is on, on the coastal mountain range. And that waterway that, that comes in off the Pacific there becomes the Juan de Fuca Strait. And the Juan de Fuca Strait separates the United States from Canada at that juncture. And on to the north of the Cascade Mountains that I just described is Vancouver Island, which is part of Canada. And that's roughly where we are located. And it also happens to be where the Southern resident orcas, all 74 of them now, spend uh, a great deal of their time. Now, when we talk about this area, it's a very large area. You've got essentially the Pacific Ocean, which becomes the Juan de Fuca Strait. And then you've got the inland waterways, which become through the, through the Juan de Fuca Strait, which is part the beginning of the Salish Sea, if you will, off the Pacific Ocean, then jettisons in to the Gulf Islands, the San Juan Islands, Puget Sound down in the U.S., back up towards Vancouver River and all the way up to a place called Campbell River, 
is where they've designated kind of the north end oh. of the Salish Sea. I didn't now, know that. Let me interject something here. The audience probably should know one of the reasons I'm reaching out to you, and I originally reached out to you in 2018, I believe. I believe it's because your wife saw my Salmon Folk postings and said, hey, you should talk to my husband, Barry. He's written a book, and I've got it here, Lost Frequency. And, um, and so you wrote a book, Lost Frequency, a novel of sound, speed, power, and greed. And um, on it, right here you say, Barry Swanson is a marine naturalist, a steward of the environment, and a singer-songwriter. And so I read this book, and I absolutely loved it. And it is a fiction book, but still you can tell which parts are nonfiction about Orca. And so I just thought it was so interesting. Like to me, it was very transparent that you were writing a fictional book to hook a reader who maybe would only read fiction, but through the vehicle, you end up becoming, you know, fascinated with Orca. I, I like, I feel like I learned a lot about just how complex and closely knit the family relationships are between orca and yeah um, how did you first come to love orca great well thank you very much for bringing up the book um it was a labor of love and i'm working hard on a on a second story but um yeah it, you know just to to give your um i'll answer your question but to give your listeners just a little bit of background when we talk about orcas or or killer whales as people uh, tend to call them. Um, it, it's important to note that they're part of the dolphin family, and mm. they're not really whales. They're cetaceans, but they're they're part of the dolphin family. They're an apex predator. I'm sure everybody understands what that means. They've been around for about five million years in their current carnation. So if you do the math on that and you compare it to Homo sapien. It's it's a hundred times longer. It's wh whatever the number is, and so it's really quite. Wow. And here's the interesting thing: there's somewhere between eighty and a hundred thousand of these animals on Earth right now. That's it. That's all there is. Whoa. They do frequent pretty much every waterway, ocean, sea in the world. And we happen to have the iconic southern resident orcas um, here in the Salish Sea for a good portion of the year. And I use the word iconic because um, it was really in the 1960s and early 1970s that our southern resident orcas were round up by humans um, as subjects for marine parks. And so the whole issue of orcas or killer whales in captivity began right here in the Pacific Northwest in the Salish Sea in 1964. But overall, I think people understand that we, you know, we recognize now that orcas are highly intelligent and um, they're sentient beings and and we're, we're, we're killing them by, by putting them in cap captivity. And I think a lot of people are saying, they're pushing back and saying, hey, you know, it, it's not the right thing to do. But really, it was through, ironically, through these roundups and captivity that we learned so much about orcas. 
you know, we found out that they can recognize themselves. We found out that they can recognize music. We found out that they have a language. We found out that they're extremely social. In fact, they're probably more social than human beings. We found out they're, they're incredibly tactile and they can't keep their, you know, their pectoral fins off one another. It's, it's just really, we found out that they're matrilineal and that the males typically will not leave their mother's side for their whole life, but for to go and have a little uh, fun with um, an unrelated pod for procreation and, and that kind of thing. Wow. But we, we found out so much through captivity, but also through wonderful scientists and whale-watching captains and enthusiasts like, like Rochelle and I are. And so you don't just research, um, you also live close by to where you actually get to see the, the southern resident whale pod. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct, yeah. In fact, uh, Rochelle and I do most of our observations from land. We do uh, go on the water from time to time. We uh, feel that most of the whale watching companies are doing a terrific job of um, helping to identify the specific pods that are there. And um, it's really the whale watching captains that typically keep people of interest up to date as to what's happening with these with creatures. But as far as our interest goes, we probably see uh, the Southern residents as much as anybody, unfortunately, because of a lack of their favorite prey, their fish eaters, and we can get into the different ecotypes of orcas, but um, the Southern resident orcas here are, are fish eaters and they prefer a Chinook salmon or sometimes Americans will call them king salmon um, the, over any other salmon. And that's because they're the best bang for the buck. They provide the most nutrients uh, for the orca. Orcas are, at least in modern times, beloved by people. People love to watch them. Most people's access to them, unfortunately, is through cap a captivity setting. But still, they fall in love with the creatures because they're magnificent. And then we know that they're highly intelligent and we know that they're highly social. So you've got this magnificent, highly social, intelligent creature living in the Salish Sea, but it's starving. Yeah, you know, there's been um, countless cases over the last number of years where orcas um, in the southern resident population have become emaciated and died. There, there definitely is a lack of prey for them. And I think it's worth noting that all orcas are, are they're, they're, as I mentioned, apex predators, but they're specialists. And here in um, the Salish Sea with the southern resident orcas, they are fish eaters. And they decided you know, 250 years ago <laughs> or whatever the time frame is, they had a powwow with all the orcas that were in the area. And they said, okay, we're going to eat the fish and you guys are right. going to eat the mammals. And that way we're going to preserve our, our food source. And, and so what I actually still am trying to wrap my head around is the salmon that the Southern residents would be eating. These are the salmon that would go up the Fraser River. Is that correct? Yes, they do go up the Fraser River and they swim for sometimes hundreds of miles to get to their spawning ground. 
Okay. And so that's where, for me, the connection of if people are like, okay, wait, if there's not enough salmon to eat, what can I do listening to this? To me, one of the problem areas is fish farming. Absolutely. Yeah. By now, people would have already heard episode one and two and kind of gotten the gist of why fish farms are not good for wild salmon populations. But, but to me, what, 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 what is kind of a local's take uh, there where you live about fish farms versus their impact on the food source for these orca? Yeah, fish farms, uh, open net fish farms in our waterways are a big, big no-no. The Canadian government recognizes now they made a huge mistake in allowing those fish farms to come into play in the 80s. And people like Alexandra Morton are doing a wonderful job of bringing awareness to that problem. And it's highly toxic. It's toxic. <laughs> it's toxic for the animals that feed on those fish. Yeah. I, I, I used to tell people, you know, I said, you know, orcas are so smart, actually. The fish-eating orcas are so smart. They won't even eat a, a farm-raised salmon because they know the difference. Right. And, you know, I think it's true. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's true. And, and humans are doing themselves a disservice by eating farm salmon as well. In fact, I would encourage people to eat sockeye salmon or, or any wild salmon and to discard and not uh, farm salmon. Absolutely not eat farm salmon. That's, There's it, a straight line from a consumer choice to eat farmed salmon to the starvation of orcas. That's the thing that really I'm trying to really like talk to people about, you know. There's some dispute about how much BC salmon, farmed salmon ends up in California, but I've heard like that 85% of the, the product grown uh, in BC goes to California. Uh, but also some people said, well, I don't know if it's quite that much, but still there's so many people that, that probably love orca and, and would love to be a part of a conservation movement to help them but don't know that when they go to their favorite restaurant and they order the salmon that it's farmed and that that could be linked to the starvation of a creature they would love to protect. Absolutely. So, yeah. so can you describe for me, so in my opinion, this sort of grisly reality of what I landed in the middle of? I landed around July 31st of 2018. 2018. Yeah. And I opened the newspaper after I see some stuff in the airport, I, when I landed at Victoria Airport in Sydney, I saw some headlines and I was like, what the hell is going on? So you're speaking of J35. So the southern resident orca population right now consists of 74 orcas, okay? And we call them J-Clan, and in J-Clan you have J-Pod, you have K-Pod, and you have L-Pod. And the orca that you're speaking of is J-35. Uh, her her uh, human name is Talequa, that's what we call her. I think she's about uh, 23 years old, approximately. And at the time, she had one son, J47, and she had a calf around, oh gee, it was late July anyway. And uh, the calf, um, the calf was either stillborn or it only lived for a very short period of time. 
she took the calf and she carried it, as you said, on her on her snout, which is her rostrum. So Norka has a has a rostrum, and she carried that calf for about seventeen days. Seventeen. Seventeen days. She carried that calf. She carried that calf, and the whole entire population swam with her. The whole the whole pod. They covered over 1,100 miles, which is normal for them. So orcas in the wild will typically swim 100 or something miles a day. Clearly, um, you know, this is where science and, and enthusiasts kind of butt heads. And, and I think science is finally opening up. But anthropomorphism is something that science just wants to stay clear of. And I think it you know, if I'm asked, I, I say, well, I think it relates to all the tests that scientists have done on animals over the years. And they just want you to believe that animals just don't feel anything and they don't have feelings and they're not sentient and everything. But clearly, J35 was carrying her calf for a reason. And she was either sending a message to her clan, to all orcas, or to humans, or to all creatures. But she was clear. It was a vigil. Yeah. There's no other way to describe it. I, I challenge anybody to, to, to say that that can't be true. I just, there's no way. That's what it was. Yeah. A lot of people I talked to, like I, I took the ferry from Schwartz Terminal to Salt Spring Island. That was the first thing I did within about two hours and, um, of getting off the airplane. And um, ironically, I was going to go film Rama De La Rosa who yes. was doing a swim for the Salish Sea. My name is Rama De La Rosa, and I am in love with the Salish Sea. This swim is all about putting that love into action. Our what you are hearing is from a video Rama made in 2017 when she first announced her intention to swim around Salt Spring Island. It's a distance of 80 kilometers, or to those of us here in the USA, just short of 50 miles. I just wanted to share that I'm embarking on this swim as a disabled woman, as a second-generation immigrant, uh, my mother from Guatemala, as an eighth-generation settler on my dad's side of uh, he here in Canada, feeling like it's my responsibility as a, as a settler to um, be, be and care for the land. Um, I'm swimming as a, a brain-injured person, as a survivor, as a plus-size athlete. I swim as a person who's very used to hearing people tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what I can't do. <laughs> I think that when you love something, you spend time with it. You take care of it, and if it's threatened, you stand up to protect it. She prepared for a year to swim around Salt Spring Island in order to raise funds and awareness for the orca and protecting the Salish Sea. For reference, this was a swim that would be the equivalent of going across the English Channel twice, or swimming across the breadth of Lake Ontario. Rama's story captured my attention because fish farms are related to the decline of the main food that orca eat. Once I got off the airplane, my first destination in British Columbia was to meet with Rama and talk about her swim and hopefully to do some filming on her first day of the swim. We did get to meet, but the filming aspect for us never happened. Luckily, there is a great post-swim video that she made with the Georgia Strait Alliance. Here are some clips from that, which I am using with their permission. 
My name is Rama De La Rosa and I just completed an 80 kilometer swim around Salt Spring Island to help protect the southern resident orcas. When I found out that the southern resident orcas were in danger of going extinct, I knew that I had to do something about it. So I got my whole community with me and we got out on the water and spent six days on this journey spreading awareness and raising funds to help implement the Species at Risk Act. Hello, my name is Rachel Merritt and I'm the Species Protection Coordinator for Georgia Strait Alliance. And we are a marine conservation organization who for almost 30 years has been working on the protection and recovery of southern resident killer whales. We are now at such a critical point with these whales because they are facing the effects of starvation and these effects are exacerbated by the noise pollution and the toxic contamination levels that we have in our oceans. This population is heavily dependent on one type of salmon known as Chinook. So 80 to 90% of their diet consists of this very specific species and when that species crashes like we know it has for the past several years, then the killer whales are facing imminent risk. As orcas are a top predator, this it connects into a larger issue and is really a symptom of an overarching issue that are, we're at risk of ecosystem collapse as salmon are a keystone species for the west coast here and it's not just orcas that eat salmon, humans, eagles, bears, wolves and these bears and wolves drag the carcasses into the forest and these fish feed the forests that grow the lumber, that build our homes, these trees make the air that we breathe. So as much as this is about orcas, this is connected in to the greater picture. We can't save these orcas unless we also save the salmon. And we can't save these salmon unless we save the Salish Sea. Yeah, you can think of uh, killer whales in our ecosystem as the canaries in the coal mine of the Salish Sea. If the orcas are sick, the system is sick. The timing was uncanny. During the same time as my swim, grieving mother, Taliqua, J35 was carrying around her deceased calf on top of her head for 17 to 18 days, the longest this kind of behavior has ever been recorded scientifically. As part of a grieving ritual, she didn't want to let go of her baby orca. There's been no new birth since 2015. I can understand why it was so hard for her to let go. It's really important that we all take action. I'm not asking you to swim 80 kilometers around an island, but there are little things that we can do. Currently in 2021, Ram is serving as a community care specialist with the Ferry Creek Blockade, helping to save the last stand of old growth forest on Vancouver Island. So she's doing the swim for the Salish Sea to raise awareness of orca. I land, there's an orca swimming with its child on its rostrum, and I was just like, wow, what is going on here? Yeah. And, and, and everyone I talked to, from the person I rented my car from, etc., they all said, literally, we feel like she's swimming in populated areas on purpose, as if to show humans, look at what you're doing. Well, we observed her with the pod at two places where they normally swim. And so we saw her off of uh, East Point at Saturna. Wait, you saw, you, you actually saw this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we saw her in Active Pass as well. Oh my goodness. I didn't know you actually saw it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. So J35 did her vigil. It 
it made the news across the world. It brought awareness to something extremely important to our biosphere. You know, as apex predators, orcas are important for the entire biosphere, right? From seals and sea lions all the way down to sand lances, you know, the smallest of fish, herrings and so forth. So the really cool thing is, is that um, you got here around the end of July. She finished her vigil in early August. On September 10th, of 2018, Rochelle and I were on land in Active Pass, where the orcas, where the southern resident orcas come by a lot when they're heading to the Fraser River, which is north of here. What was the feeling like when you would go and talk to other people back in 2018 when this was happening? What were people saying? What was the what was the feeling in, in like in your community? Yeah, you know, people here in the Gulf Islands, uh, Islanders, have a special connection. A lot of these people have a special connection with the orcas, um, whether they be, you know, cultural people, First Nations people, the average Joe like myself. Um, I think we all have a special relationship. And so, yeah, people were extremely sensitive to, to what was happening. And I think that there was obviously... Um, you know, just this gut-wrenching despair for her in so many ways. I think that the average person, I think, was blown away, mystified, uh, completely dumbfounded when they saw it on the news. But I don't really think that the average person that maybe doesn't live in this area could really add things up and kind of project and say, well, gee, you know, this, this is a visual. Um, it, that's, those are my thoughts. Excellent. Excellent. For what it's worth. No, I'm really glad you said exactly that. Cause that, I, I think that most people here in the USA don't know that it happened. And even if they happen to have seen an image, as you just reflected without context, it, the meaning would be lost. If I had never flown there, I never would have known it happened. I have a video and I think you've seen it. And that's J-35 coming out of the water. And Rochelle and I feel that she was trying to splash me. It, it's pretty obvious, actually. I and did she see turned, that. She turns up and looks. That's J-35. Oh. So that was, that was about a month or five weeks after she finally let go wow. of her dead calf. And, you know, I, I like to think that um, I wrote an article on this. And I, I, in the article, I said, you know, I like to think that she had moved on and um and she was she was doing okay you know i mean what what do i know i don't know anything it's your imagination right but i i don't think so <laughs> it, it really happened so it was it was pretty cool and then 2 years later around the 4th of september 2020 she gave birth to j57 her son and as far as we know He's doing well all these, uh, you know, 10 and a half months later. Wow. Now, we haven't seen him in, he hasn't been observed in the last, I think, month and a half, nor has anybody from J-Pod, but to our knowledge anyway, but hopefully he's doing well. I can't um, stress enough that I feel very connected to these creatures that we've just discussed, but also all of the creatures in this wonderful area of the world. And, um, you know, sometimes I think um, people 
uh, get a little tired of me or other people pounding the table about the Southern resident orchids. Um, but it's people like you and, and others that are trying to do good in the world. And sometimes you have to, you know, kind of pound the table. And I, I encourage your listeners, uh, if they're interested to, to, you know, to find out more, because even if you live in Ohio or somewhere like that, um, you know, there are things that, you know, you can learn yeah. and maybe, maybe things that you can, you can do, you know, yeah, to, I, I definitely to get involved. Agree. It's all about bringing awareness to all of these. There's so many important issues in the world right now. And we yeah. happen to have chosen this issue, but there, there's, I'm very respectful of anybody that, yeah. that has, um, that's I awesome. Like to care. Yeah. What I love about this topic that got a hold of me with the salmon is that it's such an easy answer. Just stop eating farmed salmon. Yeah, like it's such much. an easy thing. I know that doesn't solve all the problems for the Southern residents, but it's, it's, you know, it's at least one thing people can do to at least say, at the very least, I was able to do this and hopefully people will do even more. So that's day one. I spent the night in a small town on Salt Spring Island called Ganges, and I stayed at the Harbor House Hotel. I walked down to the Ganges Marina in the evening to watch the Harbor Air seaplanes taking off and landing, something I could never get tired of watching. I had planned on saving my hard-won GoFundMe dollars for the trip by camping out every single night. So why was I stuck in a hotel? Because the airlines had lost everything but what I was wearing and my camera equipment. All the rest of my clothing and camping gear was missing in action. Ever since I landed, this had been on my mind because I knew I couldn't afford hotels every night with the limited budget I was working with. Before going to sleep that night, I got a call. They had found my bags back in California and they would arrive at Victoria Airport the next morning. My trip was saved. As I went to sleep that night, I had tomorrow's plan in mind for day two. It was wake up, grab the ferry back to Van Isle, go back to the airport to get my gear, head north on Highway 19, and finally, before the end of the day, meet up with Martin, Georgiana, and Torgeyer at Elk Falls Provincial Park in Campbell River. I hope you enjoyed episode three, episode four, more good stuff. Stay tuned. A big thanks to Jay at Seabold Sound for the sound design, original music, and mix. Thanks to Torgeir Vosvik at VASSVIK.com for the use of his music. And you can find Barry's book on Amazon. Just search for The Lost Frequency. Remember where Rama is at? The Fairy Creek blockade? She wanted me to give you that link for protecting the last old-growth forest on Van Isle. And it's laststandforforests.com. The conservation group that Rachel Merritt worked for was the Georgia Strait Alliance, and they are at georgiastrait.org. Matter of fact, I just took a glance at it again. And they've got lots of new articles about the issues with fish farms happening right now, at least at this time of recording. And as for me, you can find me at salmonfolk.com, 
where there is a link for a GoFundMe. A donation of any amount lands you in the co-executive producer role and your name gets listed at the end of these episodes. And that's pretty cool. And so on that note, I want to thank Rianne Ernest. With her donation of $35, she helped me cover some of the costs for this. And the rest went on my credit card. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to see it keep going, then on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen, please hit that review button. And please do share Salmon Folk Radio with everyone on your list. This is Salmon Folk Radio.